Romans chapter 2, verse 12. We'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For in Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want you to understand that as Paul begins this uh, passage in verse uh, 12, in fact, the first two verses, uh, he does uh, something that we uh, might not expect. You see, he uh, seems to divide his audience into two different kinds of people, but at the same time, they're not really two different kinds of people, they're just one kind of person. And, and ver the first two verses are, are confusing in that way, but I want us to spend some time in the first two verses because it sets a, a principle going forward. You see, Paul makes a distinction between uh, two kinds of people, but it seems like it might be useless. I mean, after all, consider this. Do you believe that everyone is a sinner? Everyone is a sinner. Paul does. And he says as much in 12. There are all who have sinned understood one way, and all who have sinned understood another way. That phrase, all who have sinned, it appears twice in verse 12 in exactly the same way. There are all who have sinned understood one way and all who have sinned understood another way. But there's a sense in which uh, who really uh, cares how these sinners are understood because later in Romans chapter 3, Paul is going to say, uh, looking at Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. We know that verse, don't we? None is righteous, no, not one. And so here in verse 12, when we see all who have sinned understood one way and all who have sinned understood another way, we begin to ask, why? Why does that matter how they're understood? Everyone is a sinner. 
And not only that, in these first two verses, uh, Paul confirms that uh, everyone will be judged. When you uh, look at this verse, how it's constructed, you see the word perish and the word judged. And uh, both of those words, I think, refer to the same thing, a, a final a divine a judgment. Uh, it's going to be a judgment that uh, everyone deserves, uh, perish and judge go together in the passage. So now we've discerned everyone is a sinner and that everyone is going to be judged, but uh, there's more here. He even describes the standard by which everyone is going to be judged. Verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. To be justified is to be declared innocent. Uh, he's, he's actually insisting that the standard of God's judgment is high, and it's, and, and it's so high, it's actually impossibly high. Paul is going to say in Romans 3.30, by works of the law, that is by doing of the law, no human being will be justified. And some argue that, that here uh, Paul is hinting about Jesus, that Jesus is that, is that one who uh, is the great doer of the law. And maybe, he's, maybe he is emphasizing Jesus. But what he is most certainly emphasizing is what John Calvin says, and that is this, that in God's eyes, the righteousness of the law consists in the perfection of his works. And none of us have that perfection. So here's where we're beginning. Is that the strangest sermon and introduction you've ever heard? But here's where we're beginning. Paul is saying everyone is a sinner, everyone will be divinely judged, and everyone will fail God's standard. There aren't two kinds of people. There's one kind of people, one who is a sinner, who will be divinely judged, and one who fails God's standards. Now, you're going to hear that phrase from me a few more times in this sermon, but keep that in the back of your mind, that everyone is a sinner and divinely judged and will fail God's standard. But despite all of these features of humanity that seem to unite humanity, Paul still distinguishes two kinds of sinners. And he says in our passage that there is the kind of sinner who is without the law. He literally says, ah, namas, without the law. And there is a kind of sinner who is under the law. Uh, might be understood also as within the law. And uh, for proof uh, that there are these two different kinds of people, look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law. So he's drawing this distinction between two different kinds of sinners, even though they are still sinners, divinely judged, and fail God's standards. So he says uh, there are a kind of people who are without the law, which is probably a nickname for Gentiles. And then he says that there are a people who are under the law, which is as you know, probably a nickname for the Jews in the congregation. Now, this distinction between Jew and Gentile, I would suggest to you, is actually new in Romans. Paul hasn't made this kind of distinction before. I'm going to explain, uh, explain why that is later. But this is the first time in Romans where, where Paul is actually drawing a distinction between these two kinds of people. When he's mentioned Jew and Gentile earlier in the letter, he is not doing that same thing that he's doing right here in 2, verses 12 and 13. He's making a firm distinction between Jew and Gentile. Why? Why would he do that? Everyone is a sinner. Everyone will be divinely judged. And everyone will fail God's standard. The distinction actually seems not only unnecessary... 
unnecessary for this reason alone. The Jews are a minority in the congregation at Rome. There probably aren't very many Jews in the church. We, of course, don't know the percentage, but it's a minority for sure. And so there's a sense in which Paul's distinction, it just seems unnecessary because there are so few Jews in the church. But it also uh, is the kind of distinction that that seems hurtful. Why would you point out ethnic divisions in the life of the church? Would you have asked that question reading Romans 2, verses 12 and 13? Why? Paul, who uh, is a, uh, a man who loves that the church would be united and harmonious, why would he take the initiative to point out ethnic divisions within the church? And I think that answer is worth exploring next, because I believe that the distinction that Paul is pointing out is not merely an ethnic distinction, though it might be at times, but it's really a distinction of the heart. It's a distinction of the heart. Even though when we think of Jew and Gentile, we think almost exclusively of ethnicity, Paul is changing those terms slightly so that it becomes not an ethnic distinction, but a distinction of the heart. Now, in order to prove this, I want us to jump forward in the passage. We've looked at 12 and 13. And I want us to jump forward to verse 17. To, to, uh, to, again, to explore the answer to the question, why would he draw out these two different kinds of people in the life of the church? When everyone is, as you know, a sinner, everyone will be divinely judged and everyone will fail God's standard. And verse 17 begins with this. But if you call yourself a Jew. Now that's a very unique expression. So unique that the, that the word that Paul uses only shows up here, call yourself. But if you call yourself a Jew, you see, Paul's not making this distinction in Romans 2, verses 12 and 13. Someone else has already made that distinction. Paul knows that there are people in the church who do what verse 17 says they are doing. There are people that call themselves a Jew. It's not uh, something that is merely ethnic. It's it's something that they're designating for themselves and the public of others. It's a self-designation, whether it's true or not. You see, the word for Jew was not a very precise uh, word, especially in this Gentile city in this particular era. The word for Jew wasn't that precise. In fact, uh, there may be some in the church who uh, would have real connections to the old world Judea. Uh, There might be some in the Roman church who uh, really speak Aramaic. There might be some in the church that can actually read Hebrew. There might be some in the church who really grew up in Judea. They might know their ancestral tribe. But that is a very, very tiny minority. There surely would have been more uh, of the minority who uh, would have far looser ethnic connections. Uh, They wouldn't be able to speak Aramaic, perhaps. Most of, if not all, of their own family details were actually uh, lost uh, in the past somewhere. So uh, they have claims of uh, Jewishness, but uh, perhaps they're merely uh, quasi-Jewish. One historian suggests that in Rome, uh, some people would, would claim just the vaguest notion of Judaism in their lives. They, for whatever reason, they would want to be associated 
as Jewish. They would want to be especially sensitive uh, to uh, Jewish heritage, even if it wasn't their own heritage. You know, it may be that they want some kind of legal protections that uh, Jews in the city of Rome had at that time. It could be. Uh, They might want to uh, cling to uh, the civilization of a famous people for uh, other reasons, for uh, for, uh, that culture's attention to the law, that culture's attention to procedure, uh, that culture's attention to morals. Uh, Let me just give an example. A person might claim a connection to uh, Spartans because they're big fans of military discipline. A person might uh, claim a connection to uh, Gaelic people because they are very passionate and occasionally lose their temper. Or, or there might be a people who uh, claim a connection to, uh, to uh, Dutch people because they are extraordinarily frugal. You get the point, don't you? There, there would have been a spectrum of people in the congregation uh, who would, for whatever reason, uh, call themselves Jewish or call themselves uh, sensitive to Judaism for whatever reason. It's just so unique that Paul would say in verse 17 that they self-designate as Jewish. They're doing something. They're claiming Judaism for some reason, but we need only scan down the passage to find out the motives of their heart. They call themselves a Jew, but they rest in or depend on the law. They boast in God. You see what Paul says there? Just 17 down. They boast in God. They know his will. They approve and, of course, disapprove the actions of of others. Verse 19 says that they are sure, they're confident that they are guides and not followers. They are not the ones who are blind, in verse 19. Others are blind. In fact, in verse 20, everyone else is foolish. Everyone else is a child. And these foolish children, they're in need of what? They're in need of me an instructor, a teacher. This person doesn't merely know the law, they embody the knowledge of the law. I want you to appreciate the pomposity that Paul is sharing with regards to the people calling themselves Jews in the church at Rome. These are not merely Jews, they're they're uber-Jews, Uh, These are ones who boast in the law, and yet at the same time, they dishonor God. Verse 23, why? Why why would these people do such a thing? Why is there such a kind of person in the church at Rome? Well, now we are beginning to understand what Paul means in verses 12 and 13 by drawing a distinction between two kinds of people, even though everyone in the world is a sinner who will be divinely judged and found lacking before God's standard. There there are a couple of different kinds of people in this church. And rather than finding the answer in 12 and 13, I think we go to 17 and we find that there are a body of people in the church who think too highly of themselves a body of people in the church uh, who are uh, not as much followers of Christ Jesus as they are uh, self-moralists broadcasting uh, their own ethical code. And Paul, just by way of an example, he just mentions one thing. 
and it's odd, it stands out to us, and that one thing is circumcision. The circumcision is mentioned six times here, and he's going to keep going in chapter 3. Now, why does he bring up circumcision as an example of these self-designating Jews in the congregation? Well, we don't know exactly. He probably uses this as an example because it was such an easy point of boasting. It was a private matter, to be sure, circumcision is, but it was uh, the historic marker of male uh, Jewish obedience, uh, the the marker of male Jewish uh, status. It's almost as if circumcision is uh, like being a card-carrying member of fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. How how bona fide are you? I am a card-carrying member. I left the card at home. I don't have it with me, but I could produce it. And and it could be that Paul is just using circumcision because circumcision uh, became a token like that. It was a marker of uh, Jewishness. And so Paul mentions circumcision. But who he's really talking to are those who call themselves uber-Jews and judge everyone else around them. Now he says in verse 25 this. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What do you think Paul means by obeying the law and breaking the law? Is Paul referring to real obedience to the law such that a person's circumcision becomes valuable or important? Look at verse 25 again. This is what I think Paul is saying. I think he's already been very clear in verses 12 and 13 that everyone is a sinner and everyone will be divinely judged and everyone will fail God's standard. Uh, But I think what he's saying in verse 25 is that uh, if you obey the law, well, I think that may be a reference to Christ Jesus himself. Uh, Christ Jesus himself was the uh, only one who truly obeyed the law. You know, for someone who in verse 17 claims to be Jewish, they need to hear this. Circumcision or not, obedience to the law or not, the real value of circumcision depends upon God's grace. The value of all of my attempted law-keeping depends upon God's grace. I can put it like this, that Jesus was the only one who didn't need any of God's grace. Jesus stood on his own two feet before God. Perfect law-keeping. His circumcision then, if we look at verse 25, is the only circumcision that was truly of value. Maybe verse 25 is a reference to the perfection of Jesus. But we already know, as Paul has made perfectly clear, that... Everyone is a sinner. Everyone will be divinely judged. Everyone will fail God's standard. You see, our our living is not like Jesus' living in this regard. Our law-keeping, our faithful obedience, will never, ever satisfy God's judgment. Our law-keeping never functions as earning us a declaration of innocence from God. It's too late for that. Only grace saves us. The arrogant boasting of these Jews that Paul has in mind is the opposite of this. They are offering to the church at Rome salvation by effort, salvation by obedience, salvation by works. 
That's the real damage of this minority within the church. Real quickly, I want to help us understand what verse 27 says. He who is physically uncircumcised uh, but keeps the law will condemn you who have, who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. Uh, who, is, who is this person? I mean, 27 is there. I, I, I have to address it. He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. It's hard to know who that person is. Physically uncircumcised, keeps the law, and is in a position of condemning others. I want to offer something to you. In your margins, you can write at verse 27, Matthew 12, 41, because I wonder, I wonder if Paul here is thinking about uh, Jesus in his conversation with Pharisees and Jewish leaders when he says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We would never for a moment say that the people of Nineveh worked for salvation because they repented. And that's not what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, 41. And I wonder if Paul is saying in Matthew 2, 27, that there are a people who will condemn you. But they're not a people who have worked for salvation. They are a people who have received the doctrines of grace. I think that Paul's one who is uncircumcised but keeps the law is merely this. It's the one who, apart from Judaism, uh, hears the revelation of God as the people of Nineveh did from Jonah, and they repent. Paul is going to make very clear that the power of the gospel to convert is made known by Faith and repentance, not law-keeping. Christians love the law. Christians turn to the law to be guided in their walk. Their faith carries them deeper and deeper into godliness as they understand the law. But Christians are not saved by the law. They repent. They receive God's grace. And they are declared innocent because of that grace. What Paul is talking about is this. He's talking about a group of people in the church at Rome who deny salvation by grace. There's something about being saved by grace that is impossible for them to embrace and broadcast. They call themselves Jews. They boast. They instruct. They believe themselves that Judaism is the doorway to the Christian life. But we don't believe that, and Paul doesn't believe that. Faith is the doorway to the Christian life. Acts 15 directly confronts the notion that Judaism is the doorway to the Christian church. One doesn't have to become a Jew before they become a Christian. Acts 15 is clear. Now think about this. Is there such a thing as a person like that in our church today? A person who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but at the same time, they believe that moral integrity and ethics is the doorway into which people become Christians themselves. One author says this. He says that Christian proclamation that effectively emphasizes morality rather than redemption, well, that's Protestant liberal proclamation. 
We tend to think of uh, liberalism invading the life of the church because uh, it's coming through uh, the culture of the day. But historically, liberal Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, liberal Christianity happens when ethics become the doorway to the Christian life, when morals become the doorway to the Christian life. But faith is. Trust is. Emptiness is. And we need to be wary of this in the church. And I think that's Paul's admonition beginning at verse 17. That regardless of whether or not these people are truly ethnically uh, Jewish, the doctrine that they're propagating is a false gospel. And we need to be aware of this in the church today. Are we ourselves humble before God, giving praise to him because he first loved us? Or are we glossing over this so that we can go on our happy, moralistic way, showing off to others about how good we are and offering to them the possibility of being good just like us? By what? Working harder? By listening to me as I instruct them, as I approve certain things for their lives and disapprove certain things for their lives? That's not a proclamation of the gospel. Do we, as a gospel people, confess our sins? Do we regularly acknowledge our need for God's sustaining grace just as much as we acknowledge our need for God's converting grace? Do you hear that distinction? Do we acknowledge as a church God's sustaining grace and our need for that just as we do our need for God's converting grace? Or do we call ourselves a Jew or fill in the blank and boast and instruct? Now, we've gotten ourselves into a little bit of a dilemma here. There's something that's happening in the church at Rome that Paul wants to seize upon, to call out and get rid of. And he's going to get rid of it by doctrine. Now, Paul would look at our church and he would do the same thing. He would, he would seize, we hope, a, a very small minority. We hope it's a tiny minority. But he would see people who are clinging tightly to the law, to ethics, and not to the gospel of grace. Remember, the gospel is God's power for salvation, not my obedience. And the pickle becomes, what do we do with this acknowledgement in the life of the church? Now, what Paul does in verse 29 is very interesting. He offers a final correction, and here's where I want to tie back to earlier in the passage and be done. Verse 29, he says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, Paul's describing salvation there. He's done that in 1 verses 16 and 17 already. But as he talks about salvation in verse 29, I think, and I think I'm right, I think Paul is referring to Jeremiah chapter 4. Let me paint that scene for you. Jeremiah is preaching uh, to uh, people in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is actually making an appeal of the gospel gospel, uh, to them. So often we erroneously think that prophets preach something other than the gospel. They don't. They preach the gospel if they are true prophets. And Jeremiah is preaching in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is uh, getting smaller and smaller in influence in light of the, the, the enlargement of Babylon to the south. Jerusalem is a city of fear. 
and Jeremiah is preaching, making a gospel appeal to them. Uh, And this is his gospel appeal. He says for them to circumcise yourselves before the Lord. Right? He doesn't say, call yourself a Jew. He says, remove the foreskins of your heart in order to avoid God's wrath. What do you think that Jeremiah is doing in Jerusalem? He's not saying, let's go get circumcised and let's become far more moral people and God will honor that. Things are far too desperate in Jerusalem for that. And prophets preach the gospel. And he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Don't call yourself a Jew, but remove the foreskin of your heart to avoid the wrath of God. This is the call to repentance. It's to stop everything and lay before God at his mercy. And not only this, Jeremiah has just told the people that if they swear that the Lord lives in truth, in justice, in righteousness, think about that. He says this in Jeremiah 4 verse 4. If they swear that the Lord lives, if they proclaim his character, truth, justice, righteousness, if they bow before his character rather than bowing before their own character, then the nations will bless themselves in the Lord and give the Lord glory. That is a sweet proclamation of the gospel. And it has nothing to do with ceremonial obedience. Do you know how in Romans, I hinted at this earlier, when Paul talked about Jews and Gentiles, he didn't talk about Jews and Gentiles the way he is beginning at verse 12. If you go back to the other two occasions in the beginning of Romans when Paul uh, references Jews and Gentiles together in the same verse, you see something different. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. This is the, the theme verse for the entire letter. There's a sense in which I could go to this verse in every sermon, and perhaps I ought to. This is the first time that Paul uses the word Jew, verse 16 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What do you think he means by that? Is he trying to divide the people in the church? He isn't. When he says the Jew first, And also to the Greek, it's really about the chronological story of redemption. God makes believers who are a part of the covenant of the family of Abraham. And then he makes believers who are a part of the nations. You know, Paul is going to pick up on this in Galatians 3. Paul says this, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, You shall shall bless, uh, or in you all the nations shall be blessed. Let me tell you what I mean. Paul in Galatians 3 is looking backwards and he's saying that the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham and the nations would be blessed as Abraham believes in the gospel. Paul, when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he's really talking about the unfolding revelation of the gospel of grace. Romans 1.16 is about uh, the unfolding of the story of redemption. God personally reveals himself to Adam and to Eve. And then to Abraham's family. And then to a people called the Hebrew people. And then he does so to a political entity called the nation of Israel. And then through uh, each of these steps, God uh, reveals himself uh, to the people of the entire Gentile world. This is what Acts 1 verse 8 says. The gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. 
The gospel is proclaimed. He expands his revelation from Adam and Eve to the declaration of grace that we have the opportunity to make in the church today. It's the direction of the ministry of the world. Jew first, then Gentile. And it's the very message of Jeremiah. As those who are a part of the earlier revelation fall upon their knees and believe in the gospel, so the people of the later revelation fall on their knees and believe in the gospel. And we go forward and we preach the gospel that more would fall on their knees before God's mercy. Now, I want you to go back to verse 19. Here we have these people who call themselves Jews right there in the Roman church, verse 19 of chapter 2. And what do they say about themselves? They say that uh, we are the ones who are the true guide to the blind and the light to those in darkness. Isn't that interesting? Do you know, I think they too are referring to Jeremiah chapter 4. They are the guide to the blind and the light to those in darkness. Uh, That happens when God's people, those who have received the written code of the law, those who have been shown the frightening holiness of God, those who have been bombarded with a need for an atoning sacrifice before God, you know those people. The people in the Old Testament, written code, shown the holiness of God, bombarded with a need for an atoning sacrifice. How will they be a blessing to the nations? When they admit defeat bend their knees and receive the once and for all sacrifice of the Messiah. This was everything that the Jews were taught. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And our God does that himself to Abraham. That's how someone becomes a Christian. Why is that important? Because everyone is a sinner. Everyone will be divinely judged. And everyone will fail God's standard. Now, here's where I want to close. We're going back up to verses 14 through 16. Paul there talks about the awareness of the law, even to those who don't have the law. Again, probably a reference to Gentiles. Why these four verses about a people who make no Jewish connections at all? Well, in verses 14 through 16, there is the majority of the church at Rome. And you know, that's the majority of the people here. Right? We, we don't maintain uh, Jewish connections. We have very few uh, who uh, have an ethnic connection to Judaism. It's the majority of our church as well, verses 14 through 16. Uh, there are people who didn't grow up with that written code. So why do you think that Paul is referencing them? You know, the people in the church at Rome, they need to hear something. Paul has told them already, but they need to hear it again, that evangelism does not ultimately depend upon their efforts. Do you delight in hearing that as a Christian? A part of Covenant Presbyterian Church, do you delight in hearing that evangelism does not ultimately depend upon your efforts? Your perfection of living, your high morals, your great sense of ethics, your extraordinary wisdom, well, that doesn't convert anyone. Evangelism depends upon the efforts of God. 
In Romans uh, 1 verse 20, Paul has already said that God has made, him, made, uh, made himself known, uh, made his invisible qualities visible, his eternal power, his divine nature. They're clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This is an encouragement to us. We go out to proclaim the gospel, but God has gone before us. His creation declares his glory. Praise God for that. He has already begun the proclamation of his gospel. But in verses 14 through 16, things get very personal. This gospel proclamation that God makes in creation, showing forth his invisible attributes, that gospel proclamation has gone deeper. God has in a mysterious way written his law upon the hearts of all mankind such that all mankind has a conscience that bears witness that God is who he says he is. That there will be a judgment in which they are without excuse. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone will be divinely judged. And everyone will fail God's standard. And somehow, God has written that on the heart of every man and woman in the world. Now, why does this matter? Paul wants the Roman Christians to expect the gospel to run deep, to pierce deep inside of us, to be something that is able to go places where man cannot go. It needs to go deep because our own sense of conviction is deep. Our own sense of sin is deep. The things that our conscience bandies about in our heads and in our hearts sometimes aren't shared even with our spouses. There's this deep secret arena inside of all of us. And God has written something there. The gospel runs deep. But this is the power of God. God runs uh, so deep inside of us that, that even our own secrets will one day be exposed. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He says, this is how God assists the natural conscience to convince the sinner. He does it this way, Jonathan Edwards uh, says. He says so confidently. I love how confident he is. He says, it is by light. The whole work of God is carried on in the heart of man from his first convictions to his conversion by light. God is the one who converts. And there's something inside even the pagan's heart. The deep unbeliever, there's something in there that says that they're a sinner and that they will, will themselves be divinely judged and that they will be found lacking. Now, there's a couple of folks that I need to address because what I've said to you is that God is the watchmaker he knows everything about you, and I want to address you as a Christian. And I want you to understand that the power of the gospel runs so deep, part of your actual created and sustained being, that there is no hurt that you have that is far from God. You must believe that, Christian. There is no hurt or pain that you have experienced that God cannot place his hands on and orchestrate and use for his glory and for your good. Now, if we're willing to say that God knows everything about non-believers, he has marked himself, what about God having marked you as a Christian and loving you? 
That's why it's so important for us to believe that our Jesus sympathizes with us. The gospel runs deep. Written on you even before you said yes to the gospel. There is no hurt that you have, Christian, that is far from God. Now, if you're here as a non-believer, you need to hear something that is almost absurd. No other religion does this. Christianity says that you are known by God whether you acknowledge him or not. Christianity says what you, what you do, what you acknowledge, how you speak, how, how you uh, fight against the truths of the gospel, there's a real sense in which it doesn't matter. The gospel will come to you. The gospel has already come to you. The Christian arrogantly says that your tossing and turning at night, your inability to find satisfaction in life through money and career, through relationships and status, your inability to find true happiness confirms my God. He has made you in such a way that you will only be happy with him and no other way. What religion is that arrogant? You may hate my Jesus, but he has already asserted his ownership over you, created you, encoded your heart. You should really and truly critique the gospel. It's the only thing that makes sense of that heart. Your tossing and turning will not help. Well, these are two comforts because the gospel uh, runs deep. That's what Paul is asserting beginning at verse 14, that God is the great writer. It's an encouragement for us to proclaim the gospel as Christians, and it's encouragement for us to know that the comfort that God gives us is a very deep comfort. He has made us and he knows us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we call you Father, call ourselves children, what does all that mean? How glorious it is to be your children. Our Heavenly Father, we would ask a couple of things. We would ask that you would make us strong against working for your affection. It's still a massive temptation for us. Would you make us strong against desiring to work for your affection? That's the first thing. And the second thing we would ask is this. Would you give us great confidence in talking to others about Jesus Christ? You have gone before us, proclaimed yourself in creation, and written yourself upon their hearts and consciences. It's dim, but it has happened. Would we take comfort and courageously tell others about Jesus? In whose name we pray. Amen.